welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Utopian Apocalypse, How Dystopian Novels Reveal the Dark Side of Perfection, by Matt Carpenter. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Dear Father, thank you for everyone who is here. Thank you for the opportunity to be together, and thank you for the crisp weather we have. I pray that you would keep us all safe, give us good fellowship. In Christ's name, amen. So, this is, uh, first of all, just by way of introduction, this is not the normal, I'm going to have to go ahead and just turn that off. Can't carry all these things. I'm a teacher, but do not have my own lectern yet, so we'll remedy that in time. This is not like a sermon. These are not going to be sermons because uh, there's this first lecture is four pages, so I couldn't preach through four pages. I mean, usually when I'm just preaching, I have two pages, and then that still ends up being about 35 minutes. So anyway, so if you don't see eye contact as much as you would prefer, it's not because I'm bored with my topic, I promise you. So, to begin, this first talk is called uh, Utopian Apocalypse, How Dystopian Novels Reveal the Dark Side of Perfection. In the beginning was the Word, and soon in opposition to the Word was the lie. Once man received the command to be fruitful and multiply, though he was placed in God's garden, he had a choice. Remain as steward under Yahweh's command, or seize the fruit and become like God immediately. The resulting division of his sin from God and man, the division of man and man, and between man and creation, left us longing for what was lost. We seek for our home, which is the actual meaning of the word nostalgia. But we can never fully find home. Though Yahweh gave his people a way back through the gate of the tabernacle and later the temple and finally through Christ himself, the gate was always narrow and the way was always straight. The promise of progress in, on our own terms, apart from God, has always been with us. Leviathan's plan is quicker, easier, and more enticing. Golden visions of coming dawn drip from the serpent's tongue like honey from a killer beehive. It's there for the taking. All you have to do is discover, first of all, how to defy human nature, that is, turn these stones into bread. Second, yield to the serpent, or as Satan told Jesus, bow down and worship me. And third, bring the kingdom into being right now. That is, cast yourself down and the angels will catch you and you can establish all that you want. The promise of this perfect life have occupied literature for thousands of years. The first promise can be found in the initial lie to Adam and Eve, but that promise has persisted. Writers have worked to reveal the capabilities of humanity in the earth, especially our capabilities apart from grace. We like the promise that we can attain what we want without having to rest on God's grace. In the naturalistic 
Pelagian perspective, nature perfects nature. Grace is unnecessary. The word utopia was first notably used by Thomas More in his book called Utopia in, 18, excuse me, in 1516. The meaning of utopia, nowhere, was satirical as More was criticizing the flagrant Roman Catholic practices in England at the time. The most famous utopian novel before the 16th century is obviously Plato's Republic. In this, Plato has Socrates taking on several well-known sophists in discussion of the meaning of justice, a good city, and how we pursue wisdom. Sadly, after the philosopher Karl Popper claimed Plato as the father of totalitarianism, re the reading public chalked up, or excuse me, Yes, the reading public chalked up the Republic to statist fantasy of Greek philosophy. Far from it, in fact, for the philosopher was criticizing Greek society as it existed, not as it should exist. So in other words, Plato was talking about the excesses of society at the time. He was not prescribing, this is what I want everyone to pursue in the future. He is giving a series of discussions about wisdom and justice, not a society that is dreamed of at night by the late Mao Zedong. Ancient writers cannot boast of many utopian, excuse me, ancient history cannot boast of many utopian novels, although the ideal society is prescribed by such writers as Zeno, Plutarch, and the Muslim writer Al-Farabi. And I'll grant you, I did not read Al-Farabi's utopian novel, so just don't ask me any questions about that one. The classic utopian novel comes into its own, though, at the time of the Enlightenment, and later the scientific revolution. The Enlightenment was a period of greater reliance on the wisdom of man to come to perfected solutions for society. This can be traced to the secularization of the Protestant post-millennial thinking of those like the Puritans. They believed that God's kingdom was coming and history was moving in a positive direction and they must adopt principles that everyone can agree on. I'm not saying the Purit this, is, this was not the Puritans themselves, but the secularization of their perspective is what yielded this belief that if we just get all the boxes checked, if we can come to certain a system of government that, and principles of understanding that everyone can agree on, whether religious or not, we can have a perfect society. When stripped of its religious influence, they would no longer, excuse me, they would allow science societies to develop that had no cause of friction. That is, religion would be removed, therefore no wars of religion. And they can flourish. They would no longer have to put their trust in the God of heaven. Demos would now be the savior. This vision of history was named by the historian Herbert Butterfield the Whig view of history, that is W-H-I-G, and it emphasized the progress of civilization, the spreading of liberal democracy, and the optimistic view of man's ability to progress. You might have recognized the Whig view of history because it is the predominant view of every politician that we have had at least since the time of Calvin Coolidge. I cannot think of anyone who had anything that, that resembled something less 
than that. This utopian vision is best articulated by the scientist and philosopher Francis Bacon in his book, The New Atlantis. The New Atlantis is an island discovered which has a perfect society. They have Christianity as their religion, but as you can see while reading further, the foundation of their society is a scientific lab slash research facility slash library called Salomon's Home. Here all their secrets are preserved and they decide, that is the scientists and the researchers decide what information they will share with the state and what they will keep to themselves for the future. So the New Atlantis is a place ruled by scientific enlightened formulas, be it politics, religion, or philosophy. Here we must consider the reason for the title of this lecture. That, ut that utopia, or that dystopian novels are the apocalypse of utopia. The word apocalypse means unveiling. While utopias only reveal what is in the mind of the idealist, another type of fiction demonstrates what it takes to make these societies. All it takes is just a few pricks here and there, and then they're underbelly is revealed. Take for instance Jonathan Swift, the barb-tongued Anglican priest who wrote Gulliver's Travels. In book three of Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver travels to the island of Balnabarbi where he encounters a society of, that conducts scientific experiments with no particular purpose. For example, extracting sunbeams out of vegetables and some other experiments that are best left unspoken in mixed company, but would make someone like Martin Luther very happy. If you've ever read some of Martin Luther's uh, less pleasant analogies and descriptions, you could understand that. Think of maybe middle school boys locker room type of talk. And that's, what, you know, so at least if nothing else, some of you might be interested now in reading Gulliver's Travels. Here Swift is making fun of Bacon's new Atlantis, its liberal democratic government and its scientific perfection. Swift had no time for attempts at human perfectibility apart from the grace of God. Whatever his own personal beliefs, it is under, it's clear that he believed in man's original sin and the limitations that it presents. But whereas satire is a weapon against the poison of utopian thinking, the dystopian novel is an antidote to our visions of a perfect society. Dystopian literature comes into its own in the 20th century, much later than its older utopian cousin. The father of dystopian fiction is considered E.M. Forrester, whose short story, The Machine Stops, is a careful example of what the loss of, of the loss of freedom that comes when people give themselves over to living under the power of the machine. It was first published in 1909 and continues to be a staple of dystopian literature. Here Forrester predicted an internet-like machine with instant messaging powers, something the equivalent of Facebook and, and even something like Zoom. 
people no longer go outside. They only enjoy different holograms from within the protection of their own home for fear of, and of the danger and disease that might exist outside of their home. Recognize anything? It begins this way. So this is the beginning of, of Forrester's uh, story. Imagine if you can a small room, hexagonal in shape, like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instrument, yet at the movement, excuse me, at the moment that my med meditation opens, this room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the center, and by its, by its side a reading desk that is all furniture. Excuse me, that, a reading desk, and that is all the furniture. In the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh woman, about five feet high, with a face white as fungus. It is to her that this little room belongs, and an electric bell rang. Now, this goes on, and that electric bell was actually her son, who was, quote, calling, but he's calling via something like a holographic Zoom experience, where he's asking to talk to her, but she says, you have to wait because I'm about to give a lecture on some random topic to her Facebook Live group. Again, that's not the name, but that's, that's what's going on. And you said, I mean, this is 1909. So to, to think about someone who's writing about this is pretty remarkable. Her son is trying to warn her of the problems of the machine, and she will not listen. So again, if you, it's public domain, it's on the internet, you can just copy it, print it off so you don't feel like you're being ironic by reading this story on the internet, but you know, however you want to do it, it's really good though. All dystopias have several things in common. They usually depict totalitarian governments or businesses or some combination of that. People are usually dominated by technology of some sort either through machines, drugs, or peer pressure. The depth of control that those governments or societies display is frightening. Sometimes it's frightening because of the raw power displayed by those in control, 1984 by George Orwell, or by the voluntary yielding of natural responsibilities, of just giving up freedoms and responsibilities and rights for pleasure see Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. These, incidentally, are the most famous dystopian novels for most Americans. Their authors, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, clearly see the problems with modern society and where it could go. Another element of dystopian fiction is the general pessimism found. Both of the aforementioned works give no hope to man's ability to resist this power. The inherent nihilism is a byproduct of both Huxley and Orwell's atheism. Orwell's lesser-known dystopian parable, Animal Farm, diagnoses the problems of Soviet society and the emptiness of Karl Marx's promise. In all instances, these dystopias are the result of people wanting to believe the lies of those in power, that the perfect society was within reach. 
With the rise of industrialism after the Enlightenment and seeing the problems of machines, how they can deliver wealth but not fulfillment or joy in work, the future that they imagined is eerily prophetic. Now, I will insert here that there's another genre of dystopian novel that I'm not going to talk about today, and that is the, the, the post-apocalyptic, uh, anarchic type of society that you would see in Corm something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road or in uh, the... the back in the 1980s, the Mel Gibson movie Mad Max, and things like that. Th those depict, you know, society when essentially, think of Lord of the Flies. That, that, that's a novel that depicts this type of thing. So, I'm not going to discuss what happens there, because actually, the, the novels that we are going to talk about today are as uh, according to Dr. Ralph Wood, who's part of the Honors College at Baylor University, it is anti-utopian novels. But, you know, not many people really care about when you say, we're gonna, we're gonna discuss an the anti-utopian novels, and no, no that, that just do that doesn't inspire like dystopias. And these are dystopias that we will consider. Over time, leaders came to see the Enlightenment vision of universal democracy, freedom, and material wealth would not be voluntarily chosen. Instead, those things had to be enforced. This enforcement, beginning with World War I, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, World War II, and later wars to spread liberal or Marxist visions of utopia, created more bloodshed than all previous centuries together when you consider the, the bloodbath of the 20th century, it is unreal, beyond our ability to actually consider the depth of, of those tragedies. Authors like Jack London, in his work The Iron Heel, foresaw what was coming. Uh, the, the Iron Heel, of course, was written before World War I. Others, like Ray Bradbury, carefully surveyed our slouching towards utopia and held up the mirror for us to see what was actually going on. So one example of this for Bradbury is his book, The Martian Chronicles, which is his lesser known utopia, or excuse me, dystopian novel. Seeing dystopia as the realistic reflection of utopia is a good way to understand these sorts of books. One notable distinction within dystopian literature is between optimistic dystopias and pessimistic. Now, calling a dystopia optimistic may sound like an oxymoron, but it's not really. These novels don't present a rosy picture of life under compulsion, but rather they offer a ray of hope in spots. Pessimistic dystopias, again like the aforementioned books, uh, 1984, and the road and such as that offer no hope. And a good example is the end of 1984 with the main character, Winston Smith, who is throughout the book trying to resist the totalitarian government known as Big Brother. And the book, though, sadly ends this way, quote, two gin-scented tears trickled down the sides of his nose, but it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. 
end quote. Perhaps they want to warn that these men want to warn so that we don't choose that path. But once we are there for them, there's no hope. Their fatalism leaves readers with warning, but little else. However, the optimistic dystopia, although bleak, still offers message a slight message of hope. A good example here is Ray Bradbury's most famous work, Fahrenheit 451. In this novel, firefighters now burn books, and the title gets its name from the fact that 451 degrees Fahrenheit is the, the general temperature at which books will burn. But the, the firefighters, instead of putting out fires, burn books, as well as the homes that house them. The story centers around Guy Montag, a fireman who gradually sees the problems of the society in which he, he lives. The novel ends with Montag getting an island of people who have preserved the best literature, getting to an island of people who have preserved the best literature of the past and preparing to build again when the time comes. Now that theme of preserving the best that is given to us for the future and for the civilization that will hopefully arise is one that is constant in these hopeful dystopian novels. Although not a Christian, Bradbury's Christian background, he was raised a Baptist in Illinois, grounded him in the hope that God has not given up on his creation and he will restore her in time. This eschatological hope must remain for the Christian who dares to look into the abyss of human perfectionistic thinking. We must maintain realism when considering human schemes of perfectibility and hope and trust that in time God will establish His new creation. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.